At this time, if you're able, please stand for the scripture reading out of respect for God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill may be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, nothing says Christmas like matching pajamas, right? So uh, church in pajamas on the first. Is, it's going to be a very yeah, laid-back service, like Alyssa just mentioned. And we're going to focus on testimonies and just celebrating what God has done in the lives of each of us this past year. So that it'll be a much different service than we're normally used to. So if you have uh, an awesome story of how God has worked in your life, uh, an evidence of his grace, we would love to, to have you get, have the opportunity to share that on that Sunday morning. So just uh, email uh, either info at missyodefalcon.org or talk to me after the service, we'd love to get that figured out to get uh, how the whole church can celebrate God's goodness uh, in your life. So, so we are continuing our uh, Advent series. This is uh, we take four weeks every year as we approach Christmas to prepare our hearts for the significance of what happens when Jesus, when God Himself takes on human flesh and comes to Earth to live in our place, to obey in our place, to die in our place, and then to rise again from uh, uh, death, uh, defeating sin and evil uh, three days later. And so, so this this last few years have just been uh, crazy for everyone. Right? We don't need to draw any more attention to that from from 2020, now everyone was feeling the, like the lockdown blues and everyone's sneaking around trying to figure out how to get with family uh, dur- during all the, the craziness of 2020. And then last year with 2021, it felt like all the, everyone opened up all the gates, all the, the uh, no holes barred, whatever that expression means. And we're all partying with our families and friends. And now this year, I feel like as I talk to, to people in our church and as I evaluate my own heart, it feels like we're kind of all dealing with some of the aftermath of the last few years. We feel like we're kind of stumbling along, not sure if we're going to make it, not sure how this is all going to work out in our own hearts and just feeling feeling a, this mix of joy and tension and all this emotion. So in one sense, we want to be able to provide gifts uh, for those that we love, our friends and our family, those we care about. We're also feeling the strain and the pressure of inflation and all the, the way budgets have been stretched thinner than they have been in a long time for many of us. Uh, we, we want to, to be with family and to have great memories. At the same time, like our, our families and our close relationships in many ways have been strained from the tension of the last few years. Uh, we, we want to embrace all these holiday traditions and do all the fun things and create new memories with our family and our friends, uh, but we feel overwhelmed and our schedules are busy and we feel beat down by all of that. So in the midst of all of that mix of emotions, what society is telling us is just lean harder into the spirit of Christmas. Just embrace the, the spirit of the season. And when they say the spirit of the Christmas, it's a very generic, unoffensive, unobtrusive, uh, any, any very laid back kind of theology that no one would be offended by. And what we find with the spirit of Christmas in its generic form is a, is a neutered holiday. It's not a holiday that 
that's able to provide any lasting help for us. And instead, what, what Christ invites us to, what Jesus invites us to, is to, instead of embracing the spirit of Christmas, to lean into, to pursue a relationship with the person of Christ. Because it's only the person of Christ who has the ability and the power to heal all the things that are broken in our own hearts and, and in our society. And so what we're doing for Advent is we're, we're, we're slowing way down. We're going to spend four weeks going through just 18 verses, and we're going to lean into this idea of the Word became flesh. It's a, this beautiful concept from John 1.14, where, where, where John says, the Apostle John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's, it's a beautiful one-sentence summary of what it means to have Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he phrases it this way, God took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I I love the imagery of that. Can you imagine if God moved into your neighborhood and how much that would upset the apple cart? How how, how many things would be different on your street if your neighbor two doors down was God himself, right? That's the beauty of Christmas. And what we see is that if that is true, if that's a true story, that God himself moved into the neighborhood, that means that everything in our life is going to be upended. And, and so what we're going to focus on this morning is, is three temptations that we all experience, okay? And there are three temptations that we feel all year long, but they're especially poignant this time of year. We, we have this temptation to, to, to view God as uninterested and uninvolved. In, in the chaos of our lives and everything that's going on, it feels like God is this afterthought. We're tempted to think that God is uninterested and God is uninvolved. We're, we're also in this season, we're uh, tempted to see ourselves as capable Okay, are you ever tempted to see yourself as competent, as capable, as if you, if you just work hard on your own, you can figure it, it all out with the, the busyness of our to-do list and everything? I think we're, we're more tempted this time of year to lean into our own capacities and our own abilities than we are any other time of year. And the last temptation we're going to talk about this morning is this temptation to see the world as chiefly about us. Okay, with, with the message of consumerism, with all these, these uh, uh, commercials and everything pointing us to saying that your happiness and your joy is the chief priority, and if anyone gets in your way, then they should be avoided. That kind of consumeristic message that says, get as many toys for yourself as possible, that temptation leads us to think that the world is all about us. And what we're going to see this morning is that in each of those three temptations, there, there's a, this one invitation that comes from Christmas, this one invitation that comes from Jesus. And in that invitation, we're going to see that it's a way more beautiful story for us to lean into than anything the world could offer. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into a few verses of John chapter 1. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to you this morning. I thank you that when we open our Bibles, these aren't just uh, words on a page, but they are the very words of uh, your Spirit, the words that give us life, the words that show us who you are and the beauty of your Son and the beauty of that sentence that uh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. So I pray that as we go through these passages this morning, as we read these verses, that your, your Spirit would enliven our hearts, that we would see our need for you in a special, uh, special way, and that as we encounter the the beauty of your son, that we would all leave changed and we leave more in love with you than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so what I'm going to do now is what the same thing I've been doing, uh, did last week. I'm going to do it all four weeks of this uh, Advent series. I'm just going to read all 18 verses of, of John chapter 1, and then we're going to spend some time focusing on a few. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's Bibles on the table, and the table Bibles is page 886. Uh, if you do have a Bible, turn to John chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first 18 verses. And the reason I want to do this is uh, out there in the world, Christmas is the busiest time of life, right? We have more things to do. We have more stuff on our to-do list that is left undone. We have more pressure to perform and to 
to, to present all this per- picture-perfect image to the world. And what I want this space to be, this, these 40 minutes when we gather to hear the sermon, these 85 minutes when we gather to worship Jesus, is we pray that this is a, a break from the rest of the world and a reorienting, a recentering that reminds us of who Jesus is. And in seeing who Jesus is, our hearts will be made fully alive and we'll be able to go throughout our weeks more uh, in position to worship Jesus in all that we do. So just as I read this, just meditate on these words. Let the Spirit speak to you and show you a beautiful picture of who the Son of God is. Let's read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. It is true and it's given out of his love. And so last week what we did is we looked at those first five verses. And those first five verses are really the most intense picture of who Jesus is at his very being. And so we saw that, that Jesus is the infinite and eternally existent, all-powerful creator of the universe, author of all life, source of all goodness, completely, truly, and fully God. And what, and what we saw from studying those five verses is this, it's this beautiful picture of, of how different from us Jesus truly is. Okay, God in himself is as different from us as we could ever possibly imagine. What we saw was that, that, that in ourselves, in our sin, we are the furthest thing from God. But because Jesus loved us, he came to earth, he took on flesh, and even though we are the furthest thing from God, God is no longer the furthest thing from us because he loved us enough to come to earth. And so, so this idea that you are not a God is deeply offensive to those of us who try to think that if we muscle up, if we power through, we can get it done on our own and we can be self-sufficient people. But to those of us who have found ourselves exhausted and worn out and beat down by the pressure of trying to be a little mini demigod, the news that you are not God is the most freeing invitation that we could hear because it means that there is someone more powerful than us who loves us, who is able to actually make this mess of our lives come together in this beautiful tapestry of how he works in us and through us. Okay, that's what we saw last week. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to slow it down even more. Instead of doing five verses, we're going to slow it down to just three verses. Uh, And these three verses, I think, are easily overlooked. I've preached through this passage. This is my third time. All three times I've preached through it, I've never really dove into these three verses because they're easy to just skip over. Um, but, but when we look at this, I think there's so many beautiful things that show us the nature of who God is and the beauty of what he's inviting us into this Christmas. Um, I'll just make you a little aware of some of my uh, background. I, I tell Kelly every year, I'm like, I hate preaching Advent sermons because what are you going to tell someone that they've never heard before? It's like, hey, spoiler alert, Jesus is born at the end of, this, uh, the end of these four weeks, right? Like, you didn't see that shock ending coming. 
coming there. But again, when you look into this, I think when we slow down, we see the beauty of, uh, when we say this is God's word and it's true and it's given out of his love, it reminds us that every single word in this book is given from God and it has significant for our, significance for our souls. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So like I said, there's three temptations we're going to look at. And in those three temptations, we're going to see three invitations from Jesus of how we can follow him and worship him. So the first temptation that we all fear, feel, especially this time of year, is to see God as uninterested and uninvolved in our lives. And there's two different ways we can take that. One is a macro level, like a high 30,000 foot view, where we say, uh, this is the classic deism view of God. It says God maybe created the universe, he wound it up like a clock, but now it's going on its own and, it's, and, and history is left to just meander its way through until we'll see what happens because God doesn't seem to be interested in what's going on. The, 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 that's the micro uh, expression. The micro, the small level, the very close-up view of what it means for God to feel uninterested or uninvolved is, is we feel like we're left alone in this mess. It, it feels like it's all up to us. It feels like there's not really truly anyone there who is with us or who loves us or who cares about us. And so what, what that view of God says is that we are tempted to believe that he's like a disinterested parent who's on his phone, who's only half listening to what his, his kid is telling him in that moment. Okay, and in the busyness and in the chaos of this season, we're all tempted, I think, to feel like God is disinterested. He's uninvolved. He's distant from us. Okay, that, that's the, the temptation that we have. But look at verse 6, and we'll see what this shows us about God. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So this, so this John is referring to is not John the apostle who wrote the gospel of John that we're reading. This is John the Baptist who we're familiar with from all the other gospel accounts. And, and so what it's saying is that, that, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And like I said, this feels like an insignificant verse that you can read on and see what's happening. But I think in this verse, we see the answer to this temptation of feeling like God is distant from us. And what that says, there was a man sent from God. That phrase, sent from God, shows us that John, as the precursor to Jesus, was always a part of God's plan. And God, rather than being distant from human history, has actually been integrally involved in every step of human history from the very beginning. So let's take a quick look through all of Scripture and see how all of this taking place. Jesus coming into the world is not a sign of God's disinterest in us, but rather it's a sign that he has been involved from the very beginning. And so, so in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sin, they eat the fruit of the garden they were told not to eat. They, they bring sin and death into the world. The curse is placed upon them. And after the curse, God himself speaks to this future savior. He promised a salvation that says there will be one who comes who shall bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent's, uh, uh, he'll bruise the heel of the serpent or the, the, the one to come, but the, that serpent crusher will crush the head of the, the serpent of Satan himself. And it's this promise right from Genesis 3.15 that one day a savior will come who will save mankind from all of their sins. And so from there, Adam and Eve, they, they leave the garden, they have children, they, they have offspring, it grows. The world's population begins to increase, uh, and, and things get from bad to worse. The flood happens. God purifies the world from that sin, and, and mankind goes right back again to their sin and their idolatry of trying to be God. They build the Tower of Babel, trying to get themselves to God. And, and in the midst of all that chaos of sin, God chooses an idol worshiper named Abram, and he says, I have chosen you. I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to promise to be faithful to you so that, we read in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. In you, this is speaking to Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
God's saying that he chose this one specific man that through his offspring that this, this serpent crusher would come, the one who would kill uh, the devil and sin and death and all of those things would come through the offspring of, of Abraham. God is involved in the flow of history. And from there, Abraham's offspring do grow into this great nation just like God promised. Uh, they end up going down to Egypt. They grow into a, a mighty nation there. They're, they're imprisoned. They're enslaved by the Egyptians, the most powerful empire in the world. But through that, God chooses a deliverer named Moses who brings them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And then at the end of Moses' life, God says that he has planned for that Messiah, that snake crusher, the one who's going to defeat sin and evil, to come and be in a, a way similar to Moses. We read in Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, God says through Moses that I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Right, right there in Deuteronomy is this other prophecy that says God is not going to abandon his people. He will send a savior who will speak all of the words truly that God has put in his mouth. And from there, that nation of Israel, they go on, they, they inhabit the promised land, they grow into this powerful kingdom, and then God refines this promise and says it's not only through the nation of Israel that this promised savior will come, it's through one specific lineage, one specific family, the family of David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David and says, and your house and your Your kingdom shall be made for sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God's refining his promise and saying that there will be a descendant of David who will rule the universe forever and ever. It's pointing the fact that he has not abandoned his people. He's going to see this promise all the way through to fruition. But then, as we know, if you read through the Bible's story and the history of Israel, they, they sin, they rebel, they forget to worship God. So God disciplines them by sending them into exile. And and as they are being disciplined and sent off to Babylon in exile, God puts his word on the mouths of these prophets. These prophets are are, are mouthpieces for God himself, and they speak the truth of God, calling God's people back to repentance. And they they make these prophecies that one day the Savior will come. And so we see in Isaiah 7 that Isaiah prophesies that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So God is preparing the way for this person to come, this Messiah, this Savior. And then finally we get to Galatians 4. This is in the New Testament. And Paul is looking back and saying, this is how history developed. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So rather than God being uninvolved in human history, it says that God has been orchestrating and, and guiding and directing all of these events so that at this exact right moment, when the fullness of time had come, when time was, was pregnant with meaning and significance, that God sent forth his son to be the savior of all who come to him in faith. And so that, that's the story of human history. But before we get to that fullness of time, there's this prophecy that Alyssa read in Isaiah 40 that says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God. And what that prophecy is, is this prophecy that says before the Messiah can come, before the snake crusher can come, before the descendant of Abraham can come, before the prophet who's like Moses can come, before the virgin conceived, uh, uh, before Emmanuel conceived of a virgin can come, before any of that happens, there has to be a precursor. There has to be a herald. There has to be someone who says, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. And what we see from the gospel of John is that that person is John the Baptist. He was the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the the way of the Lord. So what we see is rather than God being disinterested and uninvolved in human history, at every single step of that thousand-year process from, or, or, or more than a thousand years from Adam all the way down to Jesus, God was working in every single event to lead up to this culminating moment where Jesus was born. So rather than God not being involved, we see that every single step has been guided by his sovereign hand. He has been involved every single step of the way. 
Okay, that's the macro view. But remember, we don't just are tempted to view that God is disinterested in the world. Sometimes we're, we're afraid that God might be disinterested in us. He might not actually care for us as individuals. And that's what I love about the second half of this verse 6. It says, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. Right? Like his name was John. It's a very specific thing. But when you read in the Gospel of Luke, we read that the angel Gabriel visited John's parents and said that, uh, that Zechariah told them, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Okay, so, so God is involved not only with kingdoms and nations and the history of world events, he's involved in the smallest little details. Like what is the name of the prophet who's going to prepare the way for Jesus to be? And I think that's a beautiful picture of not only God's sovereign power, he can guide history, but his sovereign love that he cares for you and me in the smallest details of our life. A few weeks ago, um, Aaron had to preach for me because I was uh, on a plane to Germany to be with my brother who was in a motorcycle accident. And and, um, I listened to the sermon that he preached after the fact. And in that sermon, he prayed for me, which was really humbling. Uh, And he prayed that I would have lots of leg room and maybe even an empty seat next to me on the airplane. All right, and on the way across the ocean to head to Germany, there was one empty seat in the entire plane. And would you guess where it happened to be? It was right next to me. And so that, that little thing, this little reminder that God cares about things like leg room, And God cares about things like the history of the human race. Okay, if that's the kind of love and affection that God has for us, we don't need to believe this lie that says God is uninterested and uninvolved. Instead, we have this invitation to rest in the fact that God is sovereign of the universe and his sovereign love extends to you and me. So that that means like current events, we don't need to worry about how the world is shaping up because if God brought human history to that manger where Jesus could be born, then he can continue to guide human history until his son returns again at the second coming to, to fully inaugurate his kingdom once and for all. And it also means that in our personal struggles, we don't have to feel like God is uninterested in us. I mean, after all, think about what that word Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means God with us. It doesn't mean God with them or God with you. It means God with us, with all of us. God is intimately involved in all of our lives so we can trust God with all of our lives. That's the first temptation. Here's the second temptation that we experience. We're tempted to see ourselves as capable and self-sufficient, right? And I feel like this is probably the most offensive one that we can say because in reality, we are incompetent, we are uncapable, and we are not able to be self-sufficient. But, but our pride wants to tell us, you got this thing, right? And I don't need anyone's help. I can do this on my own. I don't ever need to ask for anyone's help. I don't ever need to be dependent on anyone because I am strong enough in myself to make this work. And if I have to ask you for help, that means I'm somehow subservient to you and I'm dependent on you. And I want to be, I want to be my own boss. I want to be in charge of my own life. Uh, there's also another reason we're tempted to feel or, or want to find ourselves as capable or competent or self-sufficient is we're worried that if we open ourselves up to being dependent on other people, we're putting ourselves in a position where they can hurt us. There's a Simon and Garfunkel song in the 60s called uh, Rock, or I'm a Rock, I'm an Island. If you're into old classic rock music like that, right? But the the, the chorus of the song is, I'm a Rock, I'm an Island. And it's this beautiful, like, ballad of independence and self-sufficiency. But the very last line of the song, what he says, the reason he wants to be a rock in an island is because a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. And so the temptation we have to be self-sufficient is we're worried if we are dependent on anyone else, we're opening ourselves up to being vulnerable, and vulnerability often leads to us being hurt. And so what that means, what that does to our view of God is that we view, if we view ourselves as self-sufficient and capable, it means God is unnecessary for our thriving. If we just keep working harder, if we keep trying, we can keep muddling through our life, and eventually we will find out that we can figure this out on our own. That's the temptation. But listen to the invitation of verse 7. 
This is talking about John. It says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And okay, and as you think about this idea, what does it mean for John to be a witness to the light? Okay, it means that John existed to tell people who Jesus was, to point people to who Jesus was. But the words that John chooses to describe this is he was a witness to the light. Okay, he was testifying to the light. Who, what kind of person needs someone to testify or to be a witness that the light is shining? Right, what's the definition of that? It's someone who is blind. The only people who need a witness that the light is shining are those people who are themselves blind. Look, look at uh, A.W. Pink's quote. Uh, he was a, a pastor in the 1950s. This is what he says. When the sun is shining in all of its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of that fact? Who need to be told it is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. What what a convicting statement that that we are in ourselves are spiritually blind. That when the sun of God himself is shining brighter than the sun that lights our entire world, our hearts are blinded to that and we we cannot see that that the light is shining. We need a witness. We need someone to point us to that. This this is a great reason to, to pursue humility as followers of Christ. Humility is this idea that we're open to being wrong about some facts. Right? I think, I think in, my, in my own self, I want to believe that I am, am right on everything. I see things clearly on my own. I'm capable of making my life work on my own because I can see reality clearly. But what this shows us is that left to myself in my sin, my brokenness, my dead, sinful heart, I am not able to see clearly. I need someone to witness that to me. I need God to shine the light in my heart. Okay, but the other thing we talked about, remember, we, we want to be capable so we're not vulnerable. We're not open up to people being hurt. At the other half of this verse, it says, that John came to be a witness that all might believe through him. And that's this beautiful invitation that says the reason God sent John as a witness was so that everyone could believe in who his son is. It's this open invitation that says, you know, there's room at the table for you. You don't have to be self-reliant and try to close yourself off. God loved you enough to send not only his son, but to send John as a precursor, as a witness to say that you, you need to believe that the light is shining. You need to believe who Jesus is. There is place for you at this table. You are invited so we can embrace humility and recognize that in ourselves, we're not self-sufficient. We are not capable. We need someone to bear witness to the light. We need God to open our eyes. Okay, and so the reason we can lay our pride down is because we don't have this on our own. The reason we don't have to fear being vulnerable is because God himself has invited us to the table, invited us near to himself, which leads us to the third temptation. The third temptation we all experience is to view the world as chiefly about us. We want to believe that the, world, the story of the world revolves around us, that we are the main actors in this play and that everything else depends on us. There's, there's that old joke of uh, how many millennials does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, they hold the light bulb and the world revolves around them. Have you guys heard that before? Yeah. No offense to all of us millennials, right, with all of that. But what, what that does, what, we put things backwards. It says that we're the point of the universe, which means we have no purpose outside of our own comfort, outside of our own selves. We, we've, we've flipped things on their head from how they should be. But listen to how this verse 8 plays out with John the Baptist. It says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. He's saying John was not the point of his life. John was not the point of the story. His main purpose in life was to be someone who directed people to the glory of the Son of God and who he was. 
And here's what's interesting about this, is when you do some historical research, most scholars think that John the Baptist in his time had more influence and was more significant and more of a celebrity than even Jesus was. So, so the, the biggest celebrity in first century Israel understood that in himself he had no glory, he had no purpose, his only thing of it, reason for existing was not in himself, his purpose was to point people to who Jesus was. And so we see that in one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, John 3.30, where, where, where John's disciples are saying, hey, this guy Jesus, this upstart Jesus, he's taking people from following you, and now they're all starting to follow Jesus. And what John says is this beautiful statement of he must increase, but I must decrease. He's saying that he understands that his only role is the bridegroom, and now, or the, the, the best man. But now that the groom is here, his job is to draw attention and point glory to the Son of God who, who is the Savior of all mankind. So what we see is that, that, that John's humility of saying he's not the point of the story, but Jesus is, that's actually what opens it up to him having the most significant calling and the most significant purpose that anyone could ever have in the world. Remember, we're tempted to twist that and say, if I'm not the point, then I have no purpose for living. But what John does is he turns that on his head and he says, I am not the point, and that's why I have the most immensely important purpose for living. Look at what Jesus says about him in Matthew 11. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What an amazing just voice of affirmation Jesus was for John, saying that of everyone who lived, John the Baptist was literally the greatest man ever born of a woman because he had the job of pointing people to who the Messiah was. He was that prophet crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Son of God. So his role, his significance was found in the fact that he was the precursor to Jesus. Okay, but listen to how Jesus finishes that verse. In the end of Matthew 11, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. What an amazing, like, weird turn of events that Jesus says. Of everyone born of woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, except the very least significant, the least important Christian in the kingdom of heaven. That person, that man or woman, is actually more significant than even John the Baptist. And what he's saying is that John was the greatest role of anyone in history. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus. But now you and I, as followers of Christ, we are even more significant than John the Baptist because we get to look backwards in history and point people to the glory of not only the king who came into the earth, but the king who died in our place for our sin and then who rose again three days later, defeating sin and death. Okay, so it's even the very least, the most insignificant one of us is greater than even John the Baptist because we get to point people to the glory of who Jesus is. What an amazing calling, what an amazing purpose for us as humans uh, trying to to find our reason for existence here in this universe. And so um, you are not the point of your story, right? Jesus is. But because Jesus is the point of your story, you have immense value and an immensely purposeful reason for existing here on earth. I was, talk, I was reading this passage to Hudson, our, our 10-year-old, and I was like, hey, just, I'd love to get the thoughts of a 10-year-old because whenever you're stuck sermon prepping, sometimes a 10-year-old's helpful in getting your mind working a little bit. But he, he said, I was like, what do you think about this passage? He says, well, I think if John was a witness, then I should probably be a witness too. And I, I, the simplicity of that is exactly what the point of this passage is. If John was called to bear witness to the light, to point people to the goodness of who Jesus is, then what do you think the purpose of my life and of your life must be? It must be to tell people the goodness of Jesus, to point people to the glory of the Son so that all who hear of the good news of his grace can come and worship him. 
And I, I think that's the, the goal, the heart that we have for this Advent series these next few weeks is saying we don't want to waste these moments. We, we don't want these four weeks to, to come and go and us to not be changed by encountering the beauty of who Jesus is. And at the same time, don't waste these moments for your neighbors and for your family's sake as well. Don't, don't miss the opportunity to share the good news of who Jesus is, to be a witness to the light so that people can come see the glory of who Jesus is. Okay, because during this time, of, this time of year, those temptations are powerful, right? In the chaos of everything going on, it's tempting to believe that God is uninvolved. But when you look at how God has directed human history, we see that we can trust him with his sovereign love and his sovereign plan for all of history. Okay, when, when, we, when we look at our to-do list, we realize that we're further behind today than we were last week. It's tempting to get overwhelmed and think, this is all on me. I got to power through. I got to get it all done myself. But instead, what we see through this story is that, that we can't do it on our own. It's only in humility by saying, God has put all of these things in front of me for his purpose and his glory, and I can serve God with my life and what it is that I, what I do. I can see his grace laid out before me. Uh, it's tempting that when you see all those commercials for, for new cars and, and perfect holidays, and all these different vacations and things that are telling you you need to consume, you need to find your own comfort, you need to worry about yourself. It's tempting to believe that lie that you are the center of the universe. But it's only in by laying down our purposes and seeing that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. It's only in that step that we can find we're invited into the, being part of the greatest mission in the history of the world, which is telling people of the glory of who Jesus is. So let's pray and, and ask God to help us see those things this Christmas. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this time we've had to, to, to meditate on these three verses. I, I pray that as we think back through what it is that you are showing us uh, in, these, in these words, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would fall more in love with you, God. I pray that as we now go to our discussion tables, as we open up, uh, as we are vulnerable with one another, that we would see that this is a place where we can uh, encounter your truth, where our blind eyes can be opened by the power of your spirit, and we can uh, live out the identity that you have called us to live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so discussing what it is that this passage has just shown us. And so if you're new here, just know that there is uh, no pressure to ever share anything that you're not comfortable with. Uh, At the same time, you are invited to be as open and as vulnerable. This is a safe place where you will be loved well. So the first question I have for us is how often do you honestly feel that God is involved in your life? How how often does that honestly take place? And then what does forgetting that fact produce in your own heart? Secondly, when are you most tempted to feel self-reliant? And when are you most tempted to see yourself as the center of the universe? And how does John the Baptist help us find humility? And then lastly, how can you bear witness about the light this season? I want us to be specific with that question. What, what are the things you can do to be like John, to bear witness to the light that has come into the world in the person of Jesus? So we'll do that for 10 minutes, and then we will end with a time of worship and communion. All right, well, I hope you... Had great table discussion. We're going to turn to uh, communion here in just a second. Um, we practice four things that we do to proclaim God's word every Sunday. Um, those four ways we respond to God through prayer. And if you are here and you need prayer, I, I know there's some of you that, that do. Um, I'll be back here in this back corner. Uh, You can grab Colbert, any one of the other elders, and we'd love to pray with you. Don't leave here today with the same burden you came with. Know that Jesus wants to take that burden with you, away from you. Uh, The second way we do is we respond through worship. So we proclaim 
as we're going to hear in a minute, sing more worship songs. So we want to proclaim this miraculous thing that Paul or that uh, John the Baptist was declaring that the light was coming. Uh, we want to sing praise to God for that. Uh, the third way we do it is through we respond in giving. You know, everything that we have, God gave us. Everything that we give back is in, hopefully in a way of worship to say to God, thank you, but please spread the word. We want to spread that light, and that's one of the other ways that we do it. And then finally, every week we respond um, by taking uh, the bread and the cup, which is in response to 1 Corinthians uh, 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I know it's kind of strange to think about communion in the midst of this month of Advent, of the anticipation of Christ's birth. But at the same time, it's the thing that gives us all hope. Because somebody else came to pay the price that we deserve to pay. And if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you, the tables around the room, to partake of that. If you're not, please come and pray with one of us. We'd love to introduce you to our Savior. Um, I, I also wanted to, before we jump into that, I wanted to read a poem that Kelly shared with us at Thanksgiving from one of her literature classes that she was teaching. And it's a poem about, and kind of in a response that a Christian man wrote in response to all of the literature of the Greek gods and how... And it started making me think after she read it how we always, mankind has always tried to compete with God. And especially at Christmas time, there's all these things that want to compete with who Jesus is. We know the true story of what Christmas really means. And I'm not here to put Santa down. <laughs> um, but I do think that we, as followers of Christ, need to remember who Jesus is in the place of all of mankind and the history of the universe. And so I would read this, I want to read this to you, and it is a classic, it's about classic gods, but, but maybe just in your way, think about it today, about how easy it is to get caught up in the hubbub of Christmas. But as we come to the table to remember that this God we serve sent his son to die for us personally. The poem is called Descent. They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown. For lofty pride aspires to rise, but you came down. You dropped down from the mountains sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze, their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood in sacrifice. Their victims on an altar bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born. 
born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall, and strong to save. Let's worship.